0: there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host Rob O'Donoghue.
1: Hey, how are you doing? Welcome to number 36, episode 36 of the show, 1% Better Podcast show, that is. So on this one, I'm going to ramble for a few minutes at the start uh, before we get into the main episode. I'm going to touch on a few things, so one, feedback, so I got some feedback this week from a listener in San Francisco, Uh, I think that might be my um, San Francisco contingent of listeners that uh, seem to outstrip listeners in in many places in Ireland, Um, so the lady Jenny Ryan got in touch, uh, runs her own coffee shop in San Francisco and plays the show there which was really cool to hear. Jenny's feedback was around the duration or length of the episodes. Uh, she said that herself and her friends talked about what's the perfect length of a podcast, and they came up with around a 20 minute mark so we traded a few emails about that i certainly can hear and understand where you're coming from jenny uh i don't think it'd be possible for me to do some of these shows in 20 minutes given that it takes probably that long to me start it and get into the first layer of the the guest's uh, story but i totally get it i listen to podcasts between you know 20 minutes 30 minutes regularly as well some longer uh so i think Going forward, I'll continue to do these kind of hour-long, roughly. But I will look to do some shorter ones. Because I think it's it's probably a mix that people like. Saying that, I might put a little poll up on Twitter. If you're following me on Twitter, you can contribute on that at some point. I might try and do something on the site. But it was great to get the feedback, and I genuinely like hearing that. Believe me, if my episodes were 20-minute length only, I would uh, probably be able to produce more of them. Who knows? I am here for the audience's uh, pleasure and enjoyment, as well as my own, so let me know what you think on Duration. Next piece, the newsletter. So the newsletter, or pamphlet that I'm calling it, is going down well. Please sign up. Uh, there's the link on the homepage of the website. You can sign up there. It's a sure way of getting an update when a new episode is released every monday or so that would be good another thing was the documentary i mentioned today is saturday so i actually was doing some recording for that today uh lots more to come there It'll probably be f- late october i would say before it actually comes out maybe in two parts maybe three depending on uh how long i get into and obviously don't want to Alienate Jenny and, and, and uh, the 20 minute listenership. So, more to come there. I'm looking forward to getting, I suppose, more time to figure out how to do that. Never done that before. Have some ideas on how to put it together. It'll be different to the 1% better podcast episodes, but also, you know, hopefully, one that will uh, be well received. The teaser episode that I'm doing every week at the moment on the, the Friday seems to be doing good numbers as well. Uh I'd love to hear some feedback around that. Is it worth my while even putting that together? It takes time. Um I'm actually putting that up on YouTube now as well, just a shorter one because it's YouTube's a bit of a pain to put longer episodes up so you can put shorter ones there. So that works easily. But does it give you that little taste for what's coming? Uh I'll keep doing it for the next while and, and see how that goes. And then yeah the last piece is kind of out there last night as I was Preparing some content. I uh, had this weird uh, realisation. I wouldn't say a realisation. Just something came to me. The movie Bill and Ted. I presume people have seen that. If not, I would recommend it. I think I saw it recently. Didn't uh, create this link till, till, till last night though. In that movie, Bill and Ted were absolutely terrible musicians um i think all oh, they could probably play was air guitar but somewhere down the road in the future they became really good and they saved the world which was you know obviously a good idea for a movie um and i just had a realization so maybe there's some parallel between my podcast being mm, you know getting better but not so good right now and down the road it uh it may take off and little things like that sometimes come to me and it's kind of whatever i just said i'd share it Uh, maybe down the road things will get really good and maybe i doubt it but who knows you might save the world and not that it needs saving maybe not yet anyway Uh, so yeah that's a little ramble out got all that stuff out of my head which is good so this week's episode is with john c havens he is currently an executive director on the IEEE Global Initiative for Ethical Considerations in Artificial Intelligence and Autonomous Systems. He's been an actor, a writer, and very much a self-professed geek. So I found him online. He gave a TED Talk a few years ago. found it very interesting. I checked out his website, dot dropped him an email to see if he'd be interested in coming on to the show to talk about his later book called Artificial Intelligence, which looks at artificial intelligence, but also human values that could become more prominent than ever as a result of these artificial intelligent robots that are threatening to take over the world, which they may and may not. So we had a really good conversation talking a little bit about that, talking about other topics in the world of AI, augmented reality, the uncanny valley, which is something I'm fascinated about, the ethics around it, and a lot more. As you might have heard in the teaser, we talk about the area of anthropomorphization, which I'm getting better at saying something to learn from in the episode for sure, in that whole area. I hope you really enjoy it. If you do, again, please subscribe to the show. You can do that on iTunes. Uh, you'll get the episodes as they come out then follow me on one of the socials or all of the socials go to the facebook rob of the green page like the page I'll, i'm running another competition so once i get to 200 likes there i will uh give uh, a random winner a prize and yeah lots of other ways of getting in touch more feedback welcome thanks again jenny for that this week I definitely have rambled a little bit here, but I enjoy doing that, and I will stop now and hand you over to John C. Havens. Enjoy, folks. Have a great week. In this episode, I am delighted to introduce John Havens. He's an executive director for the IEEE Global Initiative for Ethical Considerations in AI and Autonomous Systems. That's quite a mouthful there, John. You're also, I guess how I come to find you was through my ongoing passion for TED Talks. I um, stumbled across your talk around hacking happiness, which was your your first book where it's I think therefore I am I think was the the tagline and I must say you're a mean harmonica player nice nice job with that <laughs> as well um, thank you so that was an excellent talk and when I did a little bit more digging into to the talk it uh, then transpired that you wrote a book since then around artificial intelligence or touching on artificial intelligence called artificial intelligence so I think there's some really good stuff that i'd uh, like to extract from you today so with that said welcome to the show
2: well thank you rob for having me uh on the show and i'm happy to be extracted from
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well we, we keep the extracting going on for the next 45 <laughs> minutes or so <laughs> what i'm always fascinated about when i talk to my guests whatever fields they are in is, is where they kind of got their interests or where does it kind of track back to so i guess when you were growing up uh, the world of ai wasn't probably that prominent unless you were involved in you know the turing tests in the early stages or something like that was was it was it a, was it something you were interested in was there a technology in your growing up uh, fascination
2: not ai specifically i think uh i joke about this but it, you know it's actually not a joke i think it's actually truth uh is that my dad was a psychiatrist he passed away in 2011 My mom still is a minister, and uh, I used to be a professional actor, and I'm a writer. So I think uh, a life of introspection has been sort of naturally my fate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess. And a lot of, um, I think, the work that I've done in AI, and and when you think about what your values are or ethics, a lot of the sort of self-examination goes back to introspection, you know, asking yourself... What are my values, and how do I actually um, describe those? And then applied ethics: a lot of the work is saying, what are the values of other people that you can describe in such a way that you can actually operationalize?
0: Hmm,
1: interesting. It's 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 interesting when you talk about um, you know, talking about doing acting as well. A couple of guests I've had on recently have had an acting background and introspection, and uh, I wouldn't say well. Sometimes they talk about being introverted. I don't know. Would that be something you would you would have been when you were growing up?
2: Um, well, there's a great book called um, "Quiet: The Power of Introverts," okay. which is a fantastic book. Uh, where the the author, uh, I think it's Susan Kane. I know it's a woman. If that's not her name, uh, the the book is the title is correct. Anyway, she talks about um, introverts and extroverts. A lot of times, the the, the ways that people think about those two. Types of people are, have been misinformed
0: okay.
2: in the sense of um, uh, where people get their energy is where the logic is more about do people like being uh, not just in, in crowds or in front of people, but, but do they get their energy from it versus uh, introverts can be more focused on smaller groups and feel value there. I'm actually an ambivert, which is both. I have, hmm. uh, I've, I'm a big ham. So I love being on stage, but I find that when I'm in smaller groups, I need to move past small talk quickly before <laughs> I find it very difficult to stay engaged because yeah. uh, I think and that might be the curse of introspection is that you know people don't always want to get in depth about whatever when they're you know at a party or something.
1: Yeah, I I can totally relate to the small talk piece at uh, parties. I probably could never really define what it was, but uh, you know, when I, when I'm talking about a common interest that doesn't involve like uh, a soap opera or something like friends or whatever uh, I, I could talk for hours on it but when when it is kind of light and fluffy it can it can feel uncomfortable in, in a way so would you say when you were growing up your your parents were obviously a big influence on how you formed as, as you developed
2: yeah and I was um a fat kid you know so uh in elementary school everyone tends to have their thing right where they feel different or Uh, In my case, it was weight issues, or that's just what the kids in the suburb of Boston that I grew up in decided to focus on. And uh, like most artists, you know, artist types, because I, like I said, used to be an actor still writer. um, It's that sort of uh, uh, circumstances forged in that kind of adversity that when I was on my own, a lot of then what I loved to do was to create and and sort of as a catharsis Mm. for that you know, pain uh, of being teased. So I, I was into music very young. Uh, I play guitar and harmonic. As you commented, thank you. Mm-hmm. And so for about thirty-ish years, uh, blues has been a huge uh, factor of my life. Um, playing blues music, I just very much identify with blues and rock and that type of stuff. Um, and uh, introspection, especially as an as an actor, a lot of your work is to not just Observe the human condition, but empathize with it. You know, you can't play like a killer, like say you're a murderer. You can't play a murderer where you as the actor are like, oh, this guy's horrible. Hmm. Because that's not not what the person is thinking. The person is, they may be horrible, but that wouldn't be what you were thinking if you were a killer, right? And that, we can talk about acting more if you want, because it's not that you're trying to sympathize with the killer, right? That's a very different thing. You're not saying that what they're doing is, quote, right what you're doing is actually trying to live in the skin or walk in the shoes of that person in a truthful way. Mm-hmm. And that, again, that again goes back to like the AI and the value stuff is that um, like the work we're doing with IEEE is not about trying to morally judge as it were uh, others or aspects of AI, but to provide tools that allows individuals to make sure they can do that on their own for them and their family.
1: Okay. Mm. and one of the things that I did want to just touch on there when when you talk about you know intro introspection or in, introversion versus extroversion one of the tools that I I like to use and maybe not use as much kind of getting question marks around it you know from a personality perspective uh, personality tests like like the Myers-Briggs you know the MBTI and whatnot would you you know, have much value in in those types of tools? Do you do you relate to them and do you think there's uh, worth in them?
2: Sure. I mean, and to your point, it depends on the actual tests. <clears throat> I think the context of how it's used and where it's used, you know, in business settings, if it's used to not manipulate, but maybe sort of define how a person can work and they feel like they're kind of separate from the process, that's not good mm-hmm. uh, necessarily. I think where it can help a person realize, and this is a pretty common uh, reason that, in terms of well-being, and I don't mean just mood, I mean long-term flourishing, um, a lot of times people work doing things they think that, not just that they're good at, but that they think it brings them sort of a pleasure, Um, but what they realize is they may be missing out on aspects of of what would bring them in positive psychology, it's called flow, mm-hmm. which is which is work or activities they do, even if they didn't get paid, or in the case of like playing a musical instrument, uh, it's this idea of mastery.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, anyway, if you aren't used to those kind of framings of work, mm. then a lot of times you just think, well, I hope I like what I'm doing today and I get paid. Mm-hmm. That that's where the Myers Briggs stuff can be a great tool to sort of say like hey, Rob, aware that these specific things are actually what you got excited about Mm. in the framing of the test, and then you might be able to go, this is the goal, Mm. oh, you know, I guess I'm working in kind of the the wrong skill sets, and if I try this other stuff, and this is what I'm big on too, is just learning from a Myers-Briggs test doesn't mean like drop your current job, walk out, you know, quit. It -hmm. means see if you can experiment in the context of the organization you already work to work on those skills and see how it makes you feel and, and how it changes your performance. And that's a great tool then to go to a manager too as well, because you're not saying, again, I want to quit or whatever. You're saying, I learned these things from this test. Is there a project I can work on for a while to see if they have validity?
1: Hmm. Cool. And uh, again, uh, you're this is cool about the conversation that we're kind of going off in a little bit of a tangent which makes it more natural from my perspective but I was on vacation myself recently and uh, I read a book um, Cal Newport uh, one around I think I think it's called So Good They Can't Ignore You I don't know if you've heard of it or read it no So, so Cal Newport I've read a couple of his books very good and I'm I guess I was a firm believer in or trying to work on you know what is my purpose what is my not just my values but yeah my purpose my mission and you would you would see a lot of people or listen to a lot of people saying oh yeah I'm going after my passion this is what I'm passionate about but statistically I'd say people are probably passionate about sports or or musician even being a musician but very small numbers of those could actually earn a living out of it um, and the, the the truth or the reality is you know what you're passionate about is probably not something you're going to to make a living out so you do have to kind of put up with some of the other stuff and what cal newport teased out a really good concept is that this idea of yeah working really really hard at something and then developing almost a passion for it when you build that mastery up that you talked about there um and putting it again you know the whole concept of the 10,000 hours over the, the you know over the 10 years you get really really good at it. and I'm not saying you're doing something you absolutely despise but you have some sort of connection with it. and the more you do it the more passionate you might become uh, with with that um is that something you would you would think or agree in any thoughts on that
2: uh, i i'd be keen to read the book uh certainly and it sounds uh like there's a lot of value to it in the sense of you know, the, like, flow for positive psychology, and I'm not saying that you or this book are advocating this, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not the idea of sort of like, you know, hey, we'd all love to be in a rock band, or, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's more a sense of can you identify, like, playing an instrument, it's actually the mastery process, meaning learning, I mean, for me, music is seminal to who I am
0: mm-hmm.
2: as well, but but it's also the idea of, like, you know, it's everyday learning, chords and scales and, yeah. and going back, building up that mastery. The flow comes that's also how the athlete is often compared. Like it's not just winning the race. Mm-hmm. It's that process. It's the longitudinal flourishing that you can get from I, I'm proactively taking actions to improve myself. In that sense I think it mirrors what you just said, mm-hmm. which is the ten thousand hours, you know, it might be ten thousand hours to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. I think the um the the risk could come uh, potentially from either methodology. Uh, if you think, well, right now this job I'm in, I'm purely miserable. But if I invest X amount of hours, which again I'm not sure, uh, I'm sure this is not what the author's advocating. Mm. But you know, just by mastering X, then I'll start to enjoy it and all that. And I think um, I think there's there has to be a yes and. But more importantly, um, the, the Myers Briggs stuff, the, the the positive psychology stuff, I think is much more fundamental in sort of like the general areas that bring you uh, a sense of flow or purpose that mm. could mirror skills that then you could take into a yeah. job. Versus yeah. what it sounds like you're talking about, which is kind of like you're in a role that's fairly specific. How do you kind of make the most of that role or maybe that industry or whatever?
1: Mm. Yeah, and, and just as you were talking about it, Mastery, he talks about taking the craft man's, craft person's mindset so you – he 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 spent a few weeks with a, a a jazz musician touring and and sticking with him watching him practice and how he practiced with this deliberate purpose and um and uh you know built up that was that passion and on top of it he talked about the idea of having career capital so you would spend you might spend 10 years working in a certain kind of role then you say oh i'm sick of this job now i want to try and do something else it's really trying to extract the parts of that role you you liked, and if you are doing something else, bringing those with you and combining them with maybe something you were passionate about, and and having you know having that capital that you've built up over the years to kind of form that new role that becomes your purpose. But um, I, I don't want to spend all our time talking about the book, but it's certainly a good one. I would recommend. He, he wrote another one called um, Deep Work, which talks about the types of work people can do to be productive. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm, I'm not a, a getting any extra, you know, royalties for talking about Cal Newport books here. This is about uh, I want to talk about your <laughs> your book, John. So, um, so, so I guess grow, growing up, then, w- when you started to go to uni- secondary, sc- high school, university, did you start to find your own clear purpose, or, or were the things you were doing growing up all kind of fitting with what you were passionate about?
2: Sort of. I mean, in high school. Ever, ever since elementary school i knew i was a big ham that i loved acting and performing and uh in high school then i got into like i was like the chorus you know glee sort of geek
1: okay. and
2: played in a lot of played in a lot of bands and um my faith um was a huge deal for me i mean it's it's still the, the central part of who i am but um it's sort of I, I came into my faith initially at least in in uh uh, junior high and high school, and and uh, went to college thinking I was going to be a minister. So I went to a small Christian college in uh, Harrisburg, near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and double majored in history and theater, because I knew I was still very passionate about acting. And it was my uh, theater professor, I think my freshman year, yeah, a wonderful guy named Earl Genzel, um, who said, listen, you know, John, I think it seems to me in your heart that you really want to pursue acting. Mm-hmm. And if that's if that's the case, you know, uh, God is Christian school, right? So God can use you in in that as a ministry, as it were, in the same way that, that God might use you to be a, a minister in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, when I was an actor, for the better part of 15, 20 years, how many people I had met that had had a similar journey, they went into – you know, they were going to be a rabbi or a Buddhist monk or, you know, what have you. And they realized they wanted to pursue acting. And sometimes vice versa. I'd meet former actors who were now ministers or, um, you know, whatever. And I think that's a, a clear kind of callback to how a lot of sort of ancient acting started it's, is that in a lot of cultural traditions, the, the shamans or the rabbis or the whoever were sort of per, providing the catharsis
1: hmm. that
2: actors still do. So I don't know, that's what an analogy. And then um, once I have got into acting, uh, after my sophomore year of college, I spent a summer at the Williamstown Theater Festival in uh, New England and really realized, okay, this is what I want to do for my career. And um, I grew up as an actor at Williamstown. I turned equity after being there for a number of summers, moved to New York in 1991, got an agent, and within about a couple of years had um met all the casting directors and was starting to get some you know half decent parts and law and order here and there okay. and films and and what have you
1: okay cool so so for a period you were a working actor you were you were enjoying and, and loving that when did i guess the tech kind of passion come into it'cause it there is a there's a technology interest there right
2: Oh, well, big time! I, I mean, I've been a geek all my life, and I think as a kid it manifested in sort of like the the cult of many geeks. You know, things like Monty Python, mm-hmm. and I'm 48, so I grew up like you know, worshiping as it were at the foot of Python, and and uh, then all the kind of 80s geekish stuff. You know, that led uh, a lot of people like Minority Report and, and all the movies. That mm-hmm. then you kind of go backwards into getting to Philip K. Dick and Heinlein, and and uh, uh, Ray Bradbury. And so, uh, the sort of, um, cultural, uh, mystique of sci-fi, I think lends a lot of you know people who are geeks at the core, like I am to, to sort of come to technology sooner or later hmm. in one way or another. And for me, it was when, um, I'd had a great, uh, what most people call a journeyman's acting career, which is I made my health insurance. I made a a good living for an actor for a number of years. And then I have uh, had kids, I, I have kids, and they were um, at an age where I didn't want to be away that much. And especially for a New York actor who had done some musicals, touring is the way you make a lot of money, right. or at least enough money to, to kind of bank some. And uh, I just didn't want to be away from my kids. Mm-hmm. And I fell into podcasting, was the, mm-hmm. the d- direct jump to, to um, business and technology because my dad raised me on... Uh, the great old um, radio shows like The Shadow and all that stuff, and so I was like, oh, so storytelling via podcast is now a way that brands can sort of define who they are, and same thing with independent podcasters. Sure. So, so in 2005, I made the jump into tech uh, with uh, podcasting, and like you know, being a podcaster yourself, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 awesome direct joy of being able to immediately. You know, have a voice, right? Literally, Mm -hmm. figuratively, and um, what happened is the About.com that website. I started writing for them about how to podcast. I ran two big podcasting conferences in New York City in 2007, 2008. There was like a thousand people at one, and 800 at the next. Brilliant. And that's also where I got into business in this, or more formally into business as an actor. You really learn how to network, especially you know to get jobs, and um, so business development was kind of a natural fit. And I worked at uh, Blog Talk Radio, which you probably know as a podcaster, VP of uh, business development. And then that led to uh, a friend of mine was looking for help in the PR firm where she was running social media. Right. And so I joined that and I ended up being an EVP of social media at this top 10 PR firm and learned a ton of stuff about business. Yeah. And then then, um, I can tell you the rest of the journey later, but that's that middle part
1: this was kind of happening organically that you weren't really pl- plotting this out it was just you were falling into it in some ways but
2: oh uh, yeah I think what happened is with acting I've been looking around for I don't know however many months in terms of what an next sort of career could be and podcasting was a wonderful natural next step I've been writing for years as a consultant okay so I, I ghost wrote a bunch of books and wrote like scripts for plays and stuff okay and, but it was at that point where i was like oh this is going to be a thing like this is back when it was still you know new media 2005 so it's like this is a thing so if i can get ahead of the curve Mm. i can you know have a next sort of career which is fortunately has worked out
1: brilliant and like that's 12 years ago in podcasting you know it's funny when i started out this just this year obviously been listening to podcasts for a few years and so interesting so passionate that the concept i like to can describe it as having a university a mobile university when you're driving you're always learning a lot of people still don't know about podcasts i don't know if that's the state in the states but in ireland uh friends and family i had to explain what a podcast was because they're still maybe radio focused um it's still i guess a new media even though it's 12 years old where, where do you think uh, we will get to the ai stuff next i promise but um, just fascinating to where do you think or what do you think is the next new wave of media and communications is there anything that you see emerging next
2: um like from a storytelling standpoint versus like techn- technology or yeah
1: maybe a storytelling yeah as in how we would Bring it to that next level, or what? What's kind of cutting edge in your world do you see at the moment?
2: Well, I've been a fan of augmented reality for years. I've written a lot about it since two thousand seven ish, eight ish, when I was at this PR firm. And I think augmented and virtual reality are really the next kind of big frontier because mm-hmm. then you, uh, whether it's mainly visual or both visual and uh, auditory, you know, storytelling will really take a massive. Uh, leap forward in terms of those those two mediums so i think those are the big ones
1: yeah and uh, obviously augmented reality is really beginning to become more mainstream i know virtual reality is, is is making great progress as well so um the next 3 to 5 years i'd say we'll we'll see massive new things coming uh, in that space i suppose great so let's let's get into the the book john so thanks for sharing it with me uh, as i said i was reading it over the the last week or so what really struck me was the way you kind of created the the story um to get the point across at the very start you talked about the uh the story where your daughter was getting a a chip inserted um and not only having a chip in inserted into into their head uh, but the fact that they could potentially be hacked was was the thing that kind of stuck out out for me it showed great imagination. Was there, you know, from putting a lot of these ideas together, did you feel the best way to get that message across was trying to create these stories?
2: Yeah, I, I totally did. And thanks. Thank you for reading it and, and talking about it. Cause um, what, um, what I think is, is challenging with uh, AI is with any, a lot of new emerging technologies is it's, it's pretty easy to kind of separate it from how you as an individual will deal with aspects of it. And, um for me and and the the story about my daughter is fictional I mean mm-hmm. I have a real daughter, yeah, but it was actually very much about my dad. my dad passed away from parkinson's okay. and there is this actual chip that's actually true i I tried to make most of the fictional vignettes actually be based on existing technologies mm-hmm. uh or existing sometimes they're very cutting edge and other times they're more robust but you could put a chip in someone's brain right now. I have a friend whose wife just did this. It can stem or slow or mitigate the actual electro, electrical uh, impulses and synapse ease um, that affect things like Parkinson's that are in the brain. So for me, that was one starting point where I thought if a chip in my dad's brain would have helped keep him alive, um, even though that might have freaked me out would I have wanted him to do it? And the answer is, of course. Mm. Uh, Same thing with my daughter. Mm -hmm. But I think it's easy sometimes to be judgmental, understandable when you hear about people augmenting their bodies or this idea of what's called transhumanism. Um, But I wanted to try to avoid, much like I mentioned about acting before, and say like, well, uh, where would the situation be in my own life or multiple situations be where I wouldn't be able to not proactively have to address certain, in that case, phys- physical or visceral aspects of AI. And then a lot of the other chapters, um, I just tried to envision, like, where what's the ultimate sort of possibility some of these technologies could have um, really as a way, like, the goal of the book, uh, the sub the subtitle or kind of main um, tagline is how will machines know what we value if we don't know ourselves? Mm-hmm. And these types of imagination exercises, at least for me, were a big goal for me writing the book and hopefully for people reading it to say, okay, that vignette makes me think of, in my own life, how I would deal with a similar situation. Um, how do I feel about that? Mm-hmm. Positive, positive. And then as you kind of make those decisions about the specifics of how they react to you, you're actually doing a maybe very general, but... Uh, uh, sort of a study in your own personal ethics or values which is a big goal for the for the book
1: yeah no no it, it, it really kind of hits at home and it it connects into a feeling i suppose when you're reading it then and then i suppose you can start connecting those feelings to maybe what you d- do have as as values in its simplest form how 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 would you define artificial intelligence in its kind of current layman's terms
2: there's a ton of different definitions, and there's also – it's a very wide field, You know, whether you're talking machine learning or cognitive computing or deep learning. Um, uh, I guess in a very simple – and I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, so seven people or more will say that's not what it is. But um, is the ability for machines or systems to replicate human tasks or behavior – in such a way, or intelligence in such a way that one would think uh, it is the same level of human uh, intelligence in the same area that you're focusing the uh, the machines on. Mm-hmm. And
1: I guess that that um, the, the area was I dug into when I got to learn about this a while back is that whole Turing test, and it's where the machine or the robot could pass the test of not. Of a human, not knowing that it wasn't another human. In your book, you talk about the term "the uncanny valley." Uh, this is something that I I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, if you know Sam Harris's podcast, he talks a lot about uh, AI and neuroscience and whatnot. Maybe talk a little bit about that term because I think it's becoming more and more uh, known.
2: Sure, I, I forget the name of the Japanese.
1: Maury. Yeah, I think it's mori or some, something. Maury, anyway. Yeah, his second name is Maury.
2: Okay, yeah. Um, well, he's the person that came up with the term or the idea or, or both, uh, meaning I'm not sure if that's an English translation of his initial findings. or mm. Anyway, but the logic is uh, with a robot, meaning a physical manifestation of, of, of AI, because when people talk about AI and then they mention robotics, they're obviously kind of two different things, but you can have a robot that doesn't have AI in it. But, but anyway, the whole point being when you look at a physical manifestation of a robot and Mm. it looks just real enough to look like a human that you realize, okay, I know it's not real. Maybe when the, when the, the, the device, you know, quote talks, the mouth doesn't go with the the words. Um, it's this unsettling feeling of you're looking at it and you're not quite sure. I think it's almost like a preternatural fear, Mm. uh, of like that's just a little bit too close to look human, but it's not. So it's you know ghost story ish. You know you think it might kill you or something. Yeah. Um, so that's that basic idea. Is then something where you know the choices in general is is two things. One, continue to work to make a device so lifelike that you don't experience that feeling anymore which is obviously a lot more challenging than what most roboticists and um, designers tend to do today which is create like a, a robot like pepper or in japan this uh, robot seal called a uh, Pero or paro p-a-r-o mm-hmm. or or even like alexa or siri right yeah. they're non-embodied uh, but siri can still have you can have an auditory on candy valley reaction where you say something to Siri and she, where I'm already anthropomorphizing by calling it she, but when she responds, you're like, uh, that, what? Like how did, that wasn't just an automatic kind of call and response. Mm. Um, And there's a famous story of a guy named Weizenbaum who created technology that's not even really AI, but this simple call and response uh, technology. uh, And he called it the Eliza it's called the eliza effect where it's it's really very simple programming where if i were like uh rob how are you today uh and however you answer the answer in response would be something like well that's too bad and then you say like well i don't think it's too bad because you know uh, i was dating this person and she decided to to leave mm-hmm. anyway then the then the response would be like well, why did they leave well she left because we were angry why were they angry so it sounds like you're having a conversation mm-hmm. But the the, the the technology is really just kind of a parroting of the last couple of words you said. It's not actual, genuine, mm. uh, like Siri, you know, personal assistant response. Anyway, all that to say, that can very much lead to both anthropomorphization, where a person thinks and starts to treat, like in the movie Her, the technology as a person, or um, uh, it freaks them out because it's too close to real, but they still are aware that it's not, quote, real.
1: Okay, so anthropomorphization, anthropomorphization just that is is that you start treating the robot as a as another person is that how that's defined
2: yeah I mean that's it's not just in robotics uh, as far as I know I mean anthropomorphizing like we tend to do it as kids right with a teddy bear okay it's uh, and it's it actually goes back to certain acting things right like um, Lawrence Olivier one of his autobiographies talks about when you play cowboys and Indians when you're a kid at least in the states (laughs) as much as much as I hate that the idea of that game in terms of how it treats American indigenous people. Sure, sure. Uh, but nonetheless, whatever the game is as a kid, you don't sit there and go like, alright, give me a minute to prepare. You know, like, "Let me, I'm going to become the cowboy. I am a cowboy. <laughs> Someone says, cowboy is Indians, I'm a cowboy, and boop, you're in it. Yeah. Right? And you start to believe it. Uh, mm-hmm. Same with your teddy bear. You're not like, well, I'm just going to pretend it's a teddy bear. You're, you're four and you're scared at night and you talk to it yeah. and there's this there's this moment where it's not like if your parents came in and said, like, you know, Rob is a little kid or John is a little kid. You're talking to your teddy bear. Do you believe it's real? Mm. There, there'd be a moment where you might go and think, like, well, I know it's not an actual bear. But you kind of allow yourself. And Sherry Turkle, who has written a seminal book in the space called Alone Together, mm. has this this great thing where she talks about anthropomorphization and robots. And she says, we're ready for the romance. So I love that I that that idea that it doesn't take a whole lot when you're alone maybe lonely or when you're in a good mood right but you're looking at something and you're kind of willing to sort of cross over and it's not really pretending cuz you're 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 doing it for yourself but mm. you actually sort of uh, allow yourself to believe that something has a reality that you wouldn't necessarily say is the same case if someone walked in and said hey you're an idiot you're talking to that machine like it's real
1: yeah know? yeah oh no that's that's really interesting to define to it like that uh, what's going off in my mind there is and i'm not saying i had but i know when you're growing up you could almost have an imaginary friend as well right you might have a bear or whatever would that still apply to something that doesn't even have any physical form is, is that anthropomorphizing an imaginary thing i don't know does that, that would it be a different oh yeah it would be yeah
2: uh, no, I think it's actually easier sometimes. Uh, like the movie Her, uh, I bring that up, or the yeah. great show Black Black Mirror.
1: Yeah, Black Mirror is um, great.
2: There's that episode where the young, uh, the, the guy and a young couple, married couple, dies, and his wife finds this technology that can kind of bring them back. And with it, yeah, it yeah. In the
1: it's it, uh, Donald Gleason. I think was the character in it. She brought back the, um, and uh, he, he was ta- he was just talking over the phone originally, and then she got a. Uh, a doll that was identical to him wasn't it yeah
2: that's it yeah, yeah that's it yeah. and and i think you know the the speaking can be very powerful because then you do the imagination work filling in the gaps whereas if you see something especially if your eyes you know you see a robotic device that you know is quote fake because mm. of the uncanny valley stuff but you know if you have an accurate voice especially if they're using in that case a loved one's actual voice mm. I mean that'd be pretty easy to be quote tricked or that you'd want to be yeah. tricked
1: you know? Yeah you mentioned Black Mirror I just watched the first couple of seasons of that when I was on vacation as well and th- the tie into augmented reality and the tie into technology and nearly every episode of that was was fascinating um, it t- certainly really it goes very deep and it's kind of scary some of the stuff I remember one of the episodes where they had the the, the chip in their behind their ear that recorded all memories of all interactions that they had and uh, some some crazy scenarios that developed out of that Um, and that might bring me on to ethics actually so I'd love to talk about the role of ethics in AI when the first thing first time this kind of came up to me I was listening to a podcast was this idea of the self-driving car having to make a decision whether to knock down the you know crash into a wall or or knock down some kids or knock down an old woman all at the same time and how how you can almost program or do you trust somebody that programmed that for you is that a part of your role in in the IEEE at the moment around ethics is there is there other scenarios like that that maybe you could share that really makes that whole world very real
2: sure um and just as a basis so Uh, As you mentioned, I'm executive director. The shorthand is the IEEE Global AI Ethics Initiative. And we have two main outputs. One is a paper called Ethically Aligned Design. Mm -hmm. Uh, Version one came out in December of 2016. Version two will come out in a couple months uh, this year. And then um, it has a number of sections written by expert AI ethicist types as well as policymakers and corporate types and Mm cross-pollinated. And the logic there is uh, we have actually 80 issues identified in the first version. There'll be much more because we added five new committees, probably more like 150, where issues, uh, not necessarily scenarios, but issues broken up by like law, personal data, et cetera, Mm -hmm. where the issues can be positive or negative, but it's more in the sense of, hey, this is the thing, right? So in the law section, a newer thing that the group focused on is the idea of robotic personhood, which is this legal issue that came out of um, the EU, or at least it was kind of identified out of the EU. And along with the issues, they provide what's called candidate recommendations. So instead of just saying, hey, this is an issue, which is important to do to identify the issue, is also saying how to, how these experts think readers uh, can, can – uh, you know, actually make pragmatic decisions based on the issue. Mm. And um, the other big thing that we do is we create ideas for IEEE Standards Association standards or working groups. Mm. And so far we've inspired the creation of 11 working groups, and these then become – by the way, this is a pitch, but the good news is yeah. uh, they're free to join. Uh, you don't have to be an IEEE member, IEEE member, and it's called the P.S. and Peter 7,000 – series, okay. Um, and I can send you for your show notes. Do, yeah, links please. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, the logic is those working groups, people can join them and actually help create the future of AI ethics, oh. at least in the sense of how, you know, an IEEE standard when, it, when it's released is is pretty powerful. So anyway, that's FYI. Brilliant. Thank you for letting me do that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so ethics, a lot of our priority, like in our mission statement, we talk about this is is, you know, ethics is not new. Uh, first of all, as a philosophy and second of all, certainly not to engineers or people creating technology. You know, the, the joke that we have a lot is like, you know, build a bridge to have it fall down, right? Engineers Mm. are not like, Oh, let's think about safety. That's the core of what they've done for decades. Mm. Extremely well. Um, AI especially brings up aspects of dealing with human agency. Like you brought up the, the, the uncanny Valley. It's a great example These are just newer things, like any newer technology brings new challenges or new realities um, uh, to the human condition. Mm -hmm. And ethics, um, uh, I think like the self-driving car thing you brought up, what we're realizing is, okay, if I'm driving in a car, a regular car today, Mm -hmm. as a driver, me or Rob, we already will make the ethical decision in one sense that we'd make anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, depending on the physical Context, we, we may not know what we would do. I like to think hmm. that if I saw a little kid in the middle of the road, I would swerve and take my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, a, who knows in, in a split second mm-hmm. if I would have enough time to think of it. B, the research in this particular area has shown most people say that they would try to save the kid's life, but then when they kind of keep doing more survey questions, they say, no, I but I don't want my car programmed to do that, especially mm. in a circumstance where the kid may have run in front of the car, you know, because kids do that, mm. but you don't necessarily want to sort of sacrifice your life unilaterally mm. based on, you know, people running in in the street or whatever. Anyway, um, that one scenario, it's 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 a good one to think about. It's 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 a little bit um, complex in one sense, meaning a lot of what we're trying to say is prioritizing ethical considerations in a new way at the core of design versus waiting till it is produced. That's a big deal that, that is somewhat new to most uh, companies or a lot of companies, meaning mm-hmm. rather than put a self-driving car out into the general public, see what accidents may happen um, along with innovations mm-hmm. and then wait for a crisis in one sense. And no one's waiting for a crisis, hoping it will happen, but if it does, then kind of going back to the drawing board and being like, okay, this is what we found out. Um, our role is and, and goal is to say, well, why do we have to do that if we if we come up with methodologies and not come up with them, but uh, applied ethics methodologies or what's called values sensitive or values driven design? It's really much more um, with uh, having a due diligence about identifying the values of end users while also identifying kind of societal metrics that you're trying to improve. Mm. So you don't just say like, hey, the end users like to kill people. Well, don't honor those. But um, anyway, long answer except to say that when you have core things like accountability, Mm. transparency, traceability, and all of the the AI that you create, these are kind of table stakes for every industry that have to happen right away or Mm. pretty soon – uh, users and customers will say, like, well, why does your competitor have all this great language, maybe like an a, a annual report, you know, discussing how they their different mm-hmm. products and services are transparent and yours aren't? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a lot of what we're trying to sort of say is let's level set these basic uh, uh, ethical principles of the core of design right away
1: okay I'm conscious of time I know you have to have a stop in a few minutes and I think just to to have the one question on the other side of other half of your book around values we talked about ethics how has and how do you think AI will or or is making people have a harder look at their own value sets and I know in the book you give great uh, interactive questions and examples on how people can track their own identify their own values and track them but do you believe AI is, is kind of a, a catalyst for people to start looking at their values in, in a new way or in a more concerted way?
2: Well, in one sense, I think the danger of AI, and this is not to blame AI because that's not my goal or the work of IEEE in any way, mm-hmm. because also, you know, it doesn't solve anything, is to say where you create technology specifically to replicate human tasks um, It's easy to sort of think about like, well, I want to automate a steam shovel because I'm tired of breaking my back shoveling. Outside of the jobs issue, like the person who was shoveling may be out of a job. The logic there is most people would say, well done. That's an innovation. That's progress going from A to B. Where uh, a lot of our work and in my book with regards to values is like be aware that there's no one that's going to jump out and be like, hey, Rob, hey, John, Mm. right now is where your values are being challenged, right? Mm-hmm. De facto, algorithms are designed to get us to do things. It's not that they're evil, but they're not inert, right? A lot of times people say, well, technology is neither good nor evil, but it's not inert, which means when someone, you know, you keep having an algorithm that says, Rob, buy my candy bar, buy my candy bar, buy my, it's whether or not you actually want that candy bar, that presence of something digitally, uh, you know, we haven't talked about data or identity too much, but the logic being, as it keeps sending those messages, that in isolation, who cares, right? It's one message about a candy bar. In aggregate with a thousand or hundred thousand others that are, you know, dealing with your identity right now today, mainly manifesting in like a Facebook ad where you're like on Candy Valley is like, why did I get that ad, right? Hmm. That that starts to affect your agency. That confusion leads to a decrease in well being. And then in terms of your values, there's no path um, uh, for you to say, well, what are my values? Mm-hmm. Um, now, traditionally, things like religion, faith, um, you know, world views—it's not, it's not like values aren't there—but mm-hmm. but more and more, as we, we rely on technology to make choices for us mm-hmm. on an individual case-by-case basis. The, the difference between something, you know, replicating a technological-oriented task that we are just happy to. Never have to deal with again in the human race versus you individually or us as a society sort of uh, allocating or or, uh, 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 releasing our ability to know how to deal with those values or ethical situations. That's where our work is. We do not want to say let's go into the future in a de facto way sort of saying like, "Ah, whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Um, No, now is the next time, the next five to 10 to 15 years. For the human race, you know, not to sound overly hyperbolic, but it's true to say these different areas are where we don't want to issue our values or give them over to machines until we can say this is how we know we'll, quote, protect our ability to continue to have choices around these values. And by the way, then, okay, we're happy to have machines do it, but then we can also pull back the curtain and stop it or or know how to do it versus give up those those abilities you know maybe forever
1: mm. fascinating stuff john i think we touched on some good stuff there there's so much more i'd love to, to talk to you about one thing i had though and as a closing question I read, it, I read it i read it in your book or somewhere online you said um you've always hoped somebody would ask you a question of uh, what's the question nobody asks but you wish they would ask what would that be? Cause I, <laughs> I think that's one that you've, uh, you said you'd like to be asked. So what, what would that be?
2: Well, that's a great, and that's actually one of my interview tricks. Exactly. So yeah. Well I read that. So uh, I said, I'd
1: throw it back at you. Yeah.
2: Well done. Um, and it's a tough one too, that no one ever asks me. Um, <laughs> hmm. technology values. Um, well, I guess, you know, sometimes people will ask me, but it's about faith, you know, hmm. um, I think religion and faith has gotten kind of a bad rap and at least in 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 western culture you know science um, is awesome and I love science I have a lot of empirical you know the empirical thing is huge for me I'm a, I'm a skeptic in a lot of ways but the um the aspect of my faith has been the most important part of who I am and it it's uh I could get mad sometimes I do but I think mainly I'm sad that you know, when people may think that the idea of faith um, is, you know, potentially bullshit in the sense of it's created by someone's sub-whatever cortex and <laughs> mm. that there's an external consciousness, being, divine entity, whatever, right. Right. that's just not there because we're creating it. Um, besides the fact that it discounts, you know, whatever, three-quarters of the world's population that avidly believes in Buddhism, Shintoism, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um I just think it's it's a it's a denying of a core part of the human experience where a it's someone's subjective reality, so unless they're crazy, they actually say, I believe I've had these different faith oriented experiences. And more importantly, you know, it's one of those tricky things of like, can science disprove God? And if the answer is no, and then the scientists say, Well, can you prove God? And the faith oriented people say, Well, here's and those types of Things I find kind of exhausting, and for mm. me, I'm comfortable with mystery, sure. and I'm comfortable with a, a dualistic aspect of science and faith can live together. Anyway, that's a that's a, a question I, I like talking about. That okay. oftentimes I don't get
1: you don't get the chance to answer it. So look, yeah, no, that that's really cool. John, I, I love the book. Uh, I'm definitely going to finish it. It's Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Our Humanity to Maximize Machines. Is there any other little bits of uh, info people could uh, reach out to you about, get in touch with you on? any Anything else you'd like to plug just before we wrap up?
2: Tristan, um, I'm very uh, Twitter-focused, fo- so at John C. Havens, and it's J-O-H-N-C, like Charlie, H-A-V-E-N-S. Uh, always love to talk to people, about my work and certainly the stuff you're working on as well. So please feel free to follow me on on Twitter. And Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate your reading the book and for the the opportunity to chat.
1: No, thank you so much, John. And send me over some details uh, uh, and I'll add them into the show notes, as you mentioned about the IEEE. I'd be delighted to include that. Um, It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I know we only had a short time and uh, there was lots more we could maybe catch up at a later point on.
2: Well, I'd be happy to come back on the show, so thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, John, and I will let you go. Have a great rest of day.
2: All right, cheers, Rob. Thank you.
1: Okay, just before you go, two minutes. I hope you listen. Just give me two minutes. Okay, so number one, the newsletter. I'd love if you signed up. I have over a 1,000 sign-ups. You'll get a note just before an episode is released every week. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. It's on the site. Click on the homepage, and you can sign up from there number two the podcast is growing listeners are going up and up and i'd like to continue to do so so would you be interested in supporting what i do no obligations but i've set up a patreon page which uh, is something a lot of podcasters are doing and other artists i say loosely and you can support it by donating for per an episode or, or just in general that would help me improve marketing improve everything i guess i'm doing and try and maybe even get to the point where i can get a guest or two on and pay them for their time so that would be great if you think there's some value in listening to the show maybe you'd like to instead of buying that seventh cup of coffee during the week you could donate the two or three euros to the show totally up to yourself if you've got richer by the one percent better podcast maybe you could donate and help it grow and how do you do so you just go to the support page on the website click on support you'll see the patreon image click there and it's pretty straightforward after that okay that's that what is your story what are you getting from the show if anything send me a note email me about that i would love to read out your story be it anonymous or whatever if you want your name read out and uh, that'll hopefully help others get something from it as well so that's really the the value the show is bringing you can get in touch through email it's at, rob, at the twitter facebook Instagram, at Rob of the Green. I'm on LinkedIn under my own Rob O'Donoghue name. Persistence is key with this. In the last few weeks, I have increased numbers and that's just through marketing, through pushing things a little bit more. I'm gonna keep doing that and get it out there. More people are hearing it. I'm gone over two minutes, I know that. If you have any ideas for guests that you'd like me to interview, I'm all ears, get in touch. And finally, thank you so much for listening and telling people about it and liking it and sharing it it's so nice to get a an email from somebody i don't know and they tell me that they've got something from the show makes it all worthwhile i'm gonna keep doing it i'm enjoying it and i'm gonna say good luck thank you bye